And we're going to be looking at this sort of picture of gospel urgency and identity in Christ. Um, because God does something remarkable in both Andrew and Peter's life that I think is going to translate. Just so you kind of know where we are in terms of biblical history. Um, John chapter 1, we're seeing the very beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry. But what we're also seeing is that John has set the foundation for who Christ is. He has set the foundation that Jesus is not only this incredible traveling rabbi, but he in fact is God. He has set the foundation that Jesus is light, that he was there at creation, and that he is actually God in the flesh. And that's going to be the movement of John's whole gospel. Those of you that have been with us for a while, we spent about two years going through every verse of the gospel of John a little while ago. And we'll remember that John's sole purpose was that you would see that Jesus is God. That was the whole purpose of his gospel. He wasn't as interested in telling you the historicity, the life of Christ. He wanted you to see that Jesus was God. And in chapter 1, he establishes those truths by saying, Jesus is the light of the world, right? That he is God and that God is in him. And so we explored this whole kind of thing. When we get to the end of chapter 1, we'll introduce this guy named John the Baptist. And John, the gospel writer, John, who wrote the gospel of John, and John the Baptist are two different people, right? So John the Baptist was the one that was foretold about in Scripture that was there to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. So if you go back in the Old Testament and you look at all this prophecy, there was one that was going to come before Jesus that wouldn't be Jesus that was going to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and that's John the Baptist. Kind of a bad name for him, actually. He didn't do a whole lot of baptizing. Actually, more John the Witness is a better name for him, John the Evangelist. And he went out in the countryside and he would proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 1, we see Jesus and a few people walking by John the Baptist on three consecutive days. And every day that Jesus would walk by, John the Baptist would shout out, there he is, Jesus, the Lamb of God, right? And he would proclaim that out. We're going to pick up, Jesus is going to walk by John the Baptist on this last day, and John is essentially doing the exact same thing. He's standing by the river's edge. His disciples are baptizing people, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is going to walk by, and he is going to proclaim to all the crowd that are there that here comes the Lamb of God. And then we're going to see Jesus do something remarkable with a few of his disciples. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn there, and uh, let's pray, and then we will open it together and see what God's going to teach our heart this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank you that your word is timeless, that it is true, and that it is moving in our lives. Lord, we thank you that we don't take our opportunity to encounter your word lightly, but God, it is the spirit of truth. And God, we ask that you would teach our hearts and you would convict our hearts and you would empower our hearts through an encounter with you this morning. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We believe that. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would teach us. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit there, and just ask the Lord to teach you here this morning. Something simple. God, just teach my heart. Just kind of whisper that in your soul. Ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Then take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that happens here on a Sunday morning is not about you or for your enjoyment or your entertainment. We want to be a people, a community, a church that is bound together by the way we pray for each other. So pray for someone beside you. Just pray that God would move in them. That whatever they're wrestling with or dealing with or thinking through, he would just meet them in the middle of that. Even if you don't know their name.
Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you, every bit in peace from the baptisms that we're going to celebrate, Lord, to the opportunity to open your word. You be glorified in all of it, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So let's look at John 135 together. And, and John the Baptist, different from our gospel writer John, he's out there in the countryside, he's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, and this is what happens, the final day that John is out there, at least that our gospel writer records them out there together. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed him. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. And it was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that had heard John uh, had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means it's trans- translated as Peter. So one of the calling of the first disciples' stories, the other this, uh, gospels record Jesus' encounter with Peter on a boat, which is really part of this narrative as well. We don't know if this interaction came first or came after that, but somewhere along the way, Peter, Simon, meets Jesus, and Andrew initiates that introduction. But it's a really powerful part of the story. So John the Baptist is out on the Judean countryside. He's doing what he's doing. He's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus walks by, and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, which is part of our vernacular as Christians, right? The idea of the Lamb of God. But really, in those days, it was a messianic proclamation. It's only used twice in the Gospels, and they're both in the instance of John. And John the Baptist is saying, look, the Lamb. And we know what that means, having our kind of picture of Jesus' redemptive life on the cross, that the Lamb of God, the last sacrifice, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb without blemish, who is Jesus, died so that you and I would be set free from our sins. Well, this is pre all that. And John the Baptist is proclaiming what Jesus would do. And so he says, look, the Lamb of God, in a couple of verses before, he says, who has come to save the world from its sin. So the disciples that are there with John, which we know one is Andrew and the other one is unnamed, which if you kind of look closely, you remember our study from the John years ago, you'll remember that most scholars believe that the unnamed disciple is actually the gospel writer John, who he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. But we have Andrew and this unnamed disciple, and they hear John the Baptist say, look, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus walks by, and Andrew and the unnamed disciple just seem to turn and follow him. They like leave John, kind of. And they follow Jesus. And Jesus is walking, and they're behind him, and Jesus stops, and he says, what do you want? Like, why are you following me? And their question to him is, well, where are you staying? And he says, well, come and I'll show you. And it's this weird language for us, right, because... That whole idea doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but when you understand sort of the context of discipleship in those days, you gave up your life and you followed a teacher. You went where he went and you stayed where he stayed and you sat at his feet and you learned and you taught and you were taught and you understood. It was a picture of teaching and submission and discipleship. And that's what Andrew and the unnamed disciple were doing with John. They had given their lives. They had walked out there with John. They had spent time with him sitting at his feet. John says, look, the one that's coming that I've been telling you about, who obviously was greater than John, John tells us in chapter 3 that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. They hear him say, look, the Lamb of God, and so they decide this is the one that we 
need to follow. And basically says, where are you going? And he says, come with me. And so you have this sort of abiding and nurturing language that's going back and forth. Where are you staying? Like, let us come with you. And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll show you. And so they basically go with Jesus, and they get to wherever he's going, and they just sit with him all day, all day. And it says it was about the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m., because they started counting hours in those days at 6 a.m. So about 4 p.m., the 10th hour, after having sat with Jesus and listening to all the things that he said, and we don't have any record of what it was. We have no idea what Jesus taught or what he said or were there any miracles. We just know that Andrew and this unnamed disciple spent all this time with Jesus. And at 4 p.m., Andrew basically came to a place where he says, I, my brother has got to meet this guy. Like he just came to some place where he just thought, I'm not going to sit here any longer. I've got to go get my brother Simon. He has to meet the Messiah or Jesus. And so he gets up and he goes and he finds his brother Simon and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So he brings Simon back to where Jesus was. And Jesus looks straight at Simon when he gets there and he says, Simon, you are the son of John, right? That was his name, Simon, son of John. You will now be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. And Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Uh, Peter is Petros in the Greek, and it means rock as well. And so Jesus renames Peter the rock, which we know who Peter becomes, but he's anything but rock right now, of course. And even in the next foreseeable future, it's an identity that's given to him that he will have to live into by the grace of Jesus. But he walks up and Jesus says, we're not going to be calling you that anymore. Your new name is Cephas, right? Petros, the rock. And we see Jesus meet Simon. Now we know the rest of kind of the story and Simon's sort of the incredible nature and the walking on water and all those incredible things and being the first to run into the tomb and then Peter's denials. We remember all of those parts of who he is. But something's really remarkable in this story, and we gloss over it so much, but I find it really incredible because there's this sense of urgency and there's this sense of identity in here that are really wrapped up in these men. And they are the picture of what it means to be part of an ordinary group of people. Like Peter and Andrew, they are not much. Peter is a fisherman, and he's not even a really good one. We know that from the other gospel accounts. He can't ever seem to catch fish unless Jesus helps. And he's a super ordinary guy, and they're from Nazareth, where it was kind of backwoods, and they had a weird dialect, and when they get to Jerusalem, nobody even believes they're educated. In fact, we learn in the book of Acts that the Pharisees look at them, and they go, these are unschooled, ordinary men. Like, they're just country guys. But something remarkable happens when they encounter Jesus. But it starts with Andrew, right? And I find Andrew's role in this story really remarkable. We actually don't pay a ton of attention to it, but it's really, really powerful. Most of our attention quickly focuses to Peter and all that he ends up doing. But Andrew plays this really powerful role. Because Andrew gives his life, he walks over, he's given his life to John, he sees Jesus, he follows Jesus. And somewhere in that incredible time that he had with Jesus, he thought to himself, I want my brother Simon to meet this guy. And he goes and he gets him. He leaves Jesus' side, which I'm sure he would have kept wanted to keep on sitting there, to go and find Simon because he wanted Simon to meet Jesus. Now, Andrew, we don't know that he has any idea of the theological intricacies that are happening. He does not know who Jesus is going to be and all of those things. He just knows that from what John has proclaimed and what he has sat at the feet and listened to, that this was the one they were waiting for. And all of Judea, they were waiting for this incredible Messiah, the one that was foretold through all the scriptures. And Andrew believed.
believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has found him. And there's this sense of urgency in him that says, I want to go get my brother. Like, I want him to meet this guy that I have just encountered, that I believe is the Christ. Remember, of course, Jesus Christ is not Jesus' last name like Treb Prater. It's a, it's a proclamation title. The Greek idea of Messiah, the anointed one. That I have found Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he has a sense of urgency that says, I want my brother to know him, to meet him, to hear him. And when you think about that for just a moment and you realize the sort of urgency that's in uh, Andrew's story, it's really powerful. Because most of us spend our lives not really being urgent about the gospel at all. We're urgent about a lot of things. We're urgent about bills, taxes, you know, being punctual, um, all those kind of things. But we have no sense of urgency really when it comes to the gospel. Yet the gospel has this incredible eternal thing that hangs in the balance, right? Like it's the thing that should stir our hearts the most, yet we spend most of our lives trying not to offend anyone and much more the ones that we love the most. We'll spend years talking about football or our kids or work, just trying to warm up to the idea that one day I might possibly invite you to church. That's our gospel urgency. And the reason we're not urgent about it is because most of us don't understand our own condition. We don't truly understand the sinfulness that pulses through our nature. The reality of the, what our sinful condition brings us to. That we are not just dying, but that we are dead in our sin. Most of us have very little understanding of what it means to be saved. Because we don't understand what, it, what we're being saved from. We have no real understanding of sin and its consequences. But when you truly wrap your mind around the biblical doctrine of sin, that you and I are dead that we have got sin that is pulsating through our nature, and it is not only separating us from God, but it is creating this enemy-like state. And the only remedy that we have is relationship with Jesus. And yet we have people in our lives that we love, that we know about, that we know don't know Christ, and we are not driven to tell them because we're so worried about them being offended. At some point in time as followers of Christ, we have to have this sense of gospel urgency. Not because the entire outcome depends on you at all, but an urgency because, like Andrew, I just want the people I love to know Jesus. And Andrew has this sort of sense where at 4 o'clock he says, I've, ha I've heard enough, like I've got to go get my brother. Yes, I could sit here all day and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. But at some point in time, Andrew just says, I want other people to know. And he doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't have a perfect kind of a, apologetic response to Simon's questions when Simon goes, well, how do we know that God created the world? I was like, I don't know, I just met him. But he was so stirred by it that he wants him to meet him. And most of us are saying, I will when I'm ready. When I have the answers to life's struggles or dilemmas or I have the, the answers to the questions they're going to ask me, then I'll, I'll finally get up and I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll, and I'll talk to them about Jesus. Got to be a sense of urgency that just draws us, especially to people that God has placed in our lives, family, workers, our coworkers, neighbors. Like I'm not talking about your need to just walk up and down the street with a sign, but the people that God has placed in your life. Do you have a gospel urgency to say, "I've sat in church for 15 years and I've listened and I've met the man that has saved me, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world"? Do I have a sense of urgency to tell anybody? But Andrew has this thing: I've got to find my brother. 
And then when he gets to his brother, he actually tells him about Jesus, which is the other remarkable part of this. He doesn't know a lot, but he looks at, and he looks at Simon when he gets there, and he tells him that we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So not only does he run up to his brother Simon and say, hey, I want you to meet this guy, but I know who he is. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And Andrew has this moment where he just talks about Jesus. Now most of us, right, we have this hang up there. And we have this, maybe if we get up enough courage to finally talk to a coworker, or a neighbor or a friend or, who are, or a parent or a whatever, most of us want to just sort of get to them and invite them to church and let whoever it is up here, myself or Brandon, whoever, do that job and just get them here. Or we've gone the other way where we've decided that we're going to live in such a way that says, I'm going to live in such an authentic, powerful way that I don't need to use words, that people will look at me and they will say, Trev, man, you are so good and so great. Like, what is different about you? And then I say, well, it's funny you should ask. It's Jesus. No one in 39 plus 5 years has ever, ever, ever asked me that. Don't do the math. Five plus six. So the, the point is, is that I'm not good enough. Literally no one in my entire life of following Jesus, from when I got saved in the eighth grade and started really walking with him at 17, no one has ever stepped up to me and said, Treb, you are so merciful. You're so different than what culture looks like. Like something so different about you and your family. Will you tell me about it? No, most of the time I'm a, I'm a repellent for those things. At some point in time, I just have to tell people about Jesus. Whether I have every right answer or not, the idea is that Jesus has changed my life. He's changed the trajectory of who I am, of my family. He's given me a reason to draw breath every morning. And at some point in time with people, I need to speak his name. My goal in terms of my personal evangelism should not bring people to bring people to church. That's great. But my goal should be to tell people about the God that has saved me. With this gospel urgency. And then to ultimately eventually talk about Jesus. Right? He's he is the, the central piece of this thing. But then what finally happens is really cool is that Andrew just says, after he finds Simon and he tells him that he met the Messiah, he met Jesus, he says, I want you to meet him. And he brings Simon to Jesus. So he takes this sort of physical action. He says, I've told you who he is. I want you to meet him, but I actually want you to have this encounter with him. I can't create that for you. I can't be the link towards your kind of meeting Jesus. I want you to come face to face with him and have your own interaction. Hear these words for yourself. Have your own relationship. And so he drags or pulls or convinces Simon to come and meet Jesus. Which is a really cool part of the story, right? Because a lot of us, our relationship with Christ began vicariously through someone else. Whether it was the faith of our parents or a spouse or somebody else. And while that introduction is great, the end desire for every one of us would be that each person in our life would have their own individual relationship with Christ. And it wouldn't be because or through me that my children would have their own saving relationship with Jesus. Not because of what I taught them or told them, but because I was able to be a part of introducing them to their Savior. And Jesus rescues them and they begin their own relationships with him. Like Andrew longed for Simon to meet Jesus personally. There's a story, I think I mentioned this before, it's a kind of a story slash legend about a, a guy named Charles Peace in the 1800s that was an English 
bad guy. He was a burglar, and he ended up killing somebody in 1879. And he was sentenced to death by hanging. And as he was being led to the gallows in 1879, they had a priest that was walking in front of him reading scripture, reading about the eternal nature of hell and the power of Jesus, reading these things as Charles walked to the gallows. As the story goes that Charles, as he was walking, stopped the preacher from talking, and he says, if you truly believe that, if that's real, this picture of hell and the power of Christ that you talk about, if that's truly real, then I would crawl across or walk across England from coast to coast on broken glass to tell one person about the truth in that saving grace. And the idea being simply this, that at some point in time in this urgency in our life, if we believe this gospel is true, what's the holdup from telling the world? What's the holdup from telling your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, the person in your life that you're assigned with? And I kind of ask that rhetorically, but I ask it truthfully. Like, who in your life is Simon? Who's, if you're Andrew, who's the one that God is pressing on your heart? I said, go and get them. Go tell them. Go find them. I can think of several people in my life who are desperately in need of Jesus. And I have known them for decades. And yet, whether it's my own petrifying fear or my own sense of trying to not wanting to mess up some relationship, there's no urgency. Yet I know that I have this key to eternal life that God has placed in my soul. And I won't share it with the people that I love the most. But I can stand up here on a Sunday and do it. See the irony there? What a mess that is. To proclaim the gospel to strangers, yet let those that are closest to me go without? Out of fear for what? Simon... And Andrew, this incredible relationship where Andrew just says, I want my brother to know. And he goes and tells him and then brings him. That's pretty simple. And so my, my kind of movement for you this morning is, who is that in your life? Who are you called to just go and speak to and tell and maybe bring? Right? You're not, your job is not to save them. That is God's movement. But your call is to speak the truth that God has shown you through Jesus Christ to anyone who will sit still long enough to listen. The last thing I want to mention is this sort of remarkable thing that happens. So Peter, right, who gets the name Peter, Simon comes to Jesus. And we have no recollection of any other conversation they have. So Simon walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John. Maybe they knew him before, maybe he didn't. He says, but that's not who you are anymore. You're now going to be called Cephas, rock, Petros, Peter, rock. That's your name. Sort of a remarkable thing, right? Because renaming someone is bold. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, you came up to me after church. I go, it's Craig, right? No, Angelo. Your new name is Angelo. I'm going to call you Angelo. I mean, the presumption there, right? <laughs> like, no, I'm kind of like Craig. No, it's going to be Angelo. <laughs> the sort of authority that's in that. To look at. Simon and be like, I'm going to give you a name. And Jewish names were really important because they, they meant things. And if we know Simon, we know that he is anything but a rock at that moment. But he would become the one upon which the entire church is built upon. 
through the grace of Christ and the discipleship of Jesus, Simon Peter would become who God told him he would become. His new identity, nurtured in by the grace of Jesus. The truth is, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he gives us a new identity. Maybe that comes with a name change, maybe it doesn't. God changed Abraham, Abram to Abraham. God does a lot of renaming in Scripture. Maybe that renaming is metaphorical, but the reality is, is that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we get this new identity. And it's not an identity that we can live into right away. It's an identity that we are grown into through maturity in Christ, but we are no longer defined by our past our sin, our mistakes, the labels and names that we had that we've been given, or even the labels and names that we've given to ourselves. You're no longer a mistake, a failure, the product of your worst night ever. You're no longer a definition of those things that have just soiled your heart. But in Christ, you are brand new, and you are a new creation. You've been given this new identity. That in him, we have not only been renamed, but we've been re-identified. Scripture is full of that. That when we are in him, Paul says, we become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So what Jesus did in that moment with Simon was not just rename him, but allow him into a new identity. And his new identity would be one that led him to ultimately die for his faith in Christ. You have been given a new identity in Christ and so have I. Does that identity lead us to the boldness of people like Andrew to walk across the room, the neighborhood, maybe even the living room, and tell the people in our life about the God that has saved us and redeemed us? A new identity where all that does not rest on my shoulders and I'm not the sum of my worst days or nights or decisions or behaviors. That I have been given new life in Christ. That's the picture of baptism that we actually celebrate today. That we are no longer our old self, but we have been buried in death with Christ, and raised to new life in Jesus. That we've not only been given a completely new identity, we've given, been given a completely new sense of purpose. That I no longer live for me, but I, but I live for Jesus. The promise of that true gospel truth is actually poured out at this table. It's what Jesus gave his disciples as the singular gift that would unite the church across the entire scope of Christian and secular culture. This would be the one thing that we hold in common. So whether you go to the church across the street or the one up the neighborhood or you're from downtown or you're from Indiana or from another place, this table is what unifies us in Christ. It was a gift to all those believers that as we celebrated this together, this would be the great reminder that we have in Jesus, that he loved us and he gave his life for us and that we could celebrate this together, it would unify us. In fact, Jesus knew what a gift that would be on the very night that he was betrayed, the night that all would run away, every single one of them, all the disciples would scatter on the night that he would be handed over and stand in the courtyard of the high priest, the night that he would be beaten and put on a sham of a trial. That night, before all that unfolded, he sat with his disciples. And after giving thanks, he took this loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all who profess, profess faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We take communion here uh, by means of intinction, which is a kind of a fancy way of saying as you come down front, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it. We'll have stations in the front and in the back. We don't do things really orderly around here. We just kind of, as you're ready, just make your way to one of the places. We encourage you to remain standing um, after we celebrate this together in worship, and then we'll give you some instructions on how we're going to walk out and celebrate baptism together. But this great kind of unifying table is the picture of the incredible promise and new identity that we have in Christ. And let's celebrate it together. I'd invite our servers to come forward this morning. Thank you.